0: Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. So last couple of weeks we've been talking about growing in Christ and how when we grow in Christ we grow in righteousness and we grow in holiness. But the section that we've been in has been dealing with false portrayals of righteousness and false portrayals of holiness. Um, And so it's been talking about things like religious showiness and rule-keeping showiness and self-denial showiness and even spiritual showiness. And that sort of stuff might serve to give an impression of holiness, but in reality they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so what we need is genuine holiness. And genuine holiness always begins at the cross. Because in our conversion and baptism experience, we have put to death our old self, such that Paul can say, with Christ you died. But when we Christians talk about the cross, to us it's not merely a symbol of death, is it? Otherwise, why would people wear a, a, a nice shiny cross around their neck as a piece of jewellery if it just symbolised death? And, and where would the good news be in that? There wouldn't be. For disciples of Jesus, the cross is most powerfully a symbol of life and sometimes we tend to forget about that and and it's about a new life a transformed life a redeemed life it's about eternal life and it all began when on the third day jesus christ was raised and today he lives is that good news yes yes and for disciples of jesus the resurrection of jesus christ spills over into our own lives such that paul says that you have been raised with Christ. Not just will be, you have been. Our baptism symbolises this. When we go down under the water, we're dying with Christ. As we come back up out of the water, we're being raised with Christ to a new life. And yet, we often tend to think of the bit about being raised with Christ as, oh, that's, that's off in the future. And in a way it is, Um, but being born again, that part happens today. And let me tell you, being born again is such a complete reorientation of who we are and a complete change in our very existence that, that we have to talk in terms that we have already been raised with Christ. yes. The the putting off of our temporary physical bodies and being raised to our new eternal spiritual bodies, that's going to happen sometime in the future. It'll happen when Jesus returns. But what we must never forget is the most radical part of our transformation is not the, the transforming of our bodies. The most radical part of our transformation is the transformation of who we are. transformation of what we're like it's the transformation of our very personality and our motivations it's the transformation of of our hopes and our dreams and what drives us and that transformation that happens now it happens now as we're raised with Christ right now the Apostle Paul he isn't all about theory you know sometimes when we're studying stuff we, we sort of just think oh yeah that's good to know But it's not just about theory. Living the resurrected life is a very practical thing. Um, If we are raised with Christ, where is Christ? Where is he now? Come on, quick. Where is he? Yes, he's in our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Where would we say the Son of God sits now? On the throne? At the right hand of the Father, isn't he? In heaven. Yeah. So he... And this is the thing. He is with us in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. But he is also sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so if we are raised with Christ, we should be seeking heavenly things. We, could be, we should be seeking the things of God rather than the things of this earth. Verse 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden With Christ in God. That's a profound statement, but what does it mean to be hidden with Christ in God? I think it means two things. Firstly, there is a present hiddenness and a future visibility. And if we think of it in terms of, of what people of the world can see, people of the world cannot understand why Christians live the way that they do. I mean, why is a Christian willing to die rather than deny their Lord? If, if life is... Because with a person of the world, they, they just view this life as everything. That's the most important thing to them. But, so why would a Christian be willing to die rather than than deny Jesus and and why are Christians willing to preach the gospel to a world who find it offensive and they just they are offended by the gospel and even when Christians are threatened if you offend me I'm going to persecute you prosecute you under the anti-discrimination legislation why do Christians continue to preach the gospel and continue to call sinners to repentance even when they are threatened with with fines or when they're threatened with losing their jobs or when they're threatened with jail why would a Christian do that the world can't understand it you see the world cannot see our future and they cannot understand why we do what we do but verse 4 talks about the time when Christ will appear he will appear for the whole world to see and guess what we'll be right there with him when Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory at the moment this is this is all hidden from the world but we know that our future is going to be we appear with Christ in glory now when I say it's hidden that doesn't mean that it's a secret I mean this is what we preach this is the gospel message we proclaim it's hidden because of what a hard heart does the symptoms of a hard heart isn't chest pain the symptoms of a hard heart is blindness and deafness To the things of God. And so it's hidden because a hard heart produces blindness and deafness, and they will not hear and they will not see the things of God. But that hiddenness will all be gone when we appear with Christ. But the second thing that I think about being hidden with Christ means is we are tucked away in safety and in assuredness. So we're fast coming up to Christmas now. I know this sounds crazy. We're still in November, but we went to our first Christmas party last night. Um, Who has Christmas parties this early? Well, we do, apparently. Um, So we're coming up to Christmas. Can anyone tell me how many shopping days are left and left till Christmas? Anybody know? I'm actually glad to hear that. That's the sort of thing I used to, we used to always know. Now we don't know how many days the shops are open. Some are open more than others. Righto. Has anyone here already done their Christmas shopping? Who's, who are the organised ones? Right. A few of you. A few of you have already done your Christmas shopping. Well, for me, the biggest challenge when it comes to, to getting ready for Christmas and getting the Christmas shopping done and so on... It's, it's not about finding the right gift because I think you'll all agree that I am the perfect gift giver. I always know exactly the right gift to give my wife. She's always very happy, except for the year I bought her a hedge trimmer, or the year that I bought her spatulas, or the year that I bought a saucepan. Okay, I sometimes have a little trouble with giving the right gift. But my biggest trouble I have is finding a spot to hide the gift I do buy. Right, so I've got to find a spot to put things where Robin's not going to find them. Got to be a spot where it's safe and so it's not going to get stolen. Uh, it's got to be somewhere where the mice aren't going to eat it. And it can't be somewhere too hot because chocolate melt. Oh, no, now she knows what she's getting. Uh, but for me, it, this problem is increasing. The problem is increasing that I have to try and remember where I hid it. Okay, now that didn't used to be a problem, but uh, you have the same problem, Margaret. You live alone, you don't need to hide anything. (laughs) Uh, But if you have something of value, something that you want to keep for yourself, what you do? You you hide it, you you tuck it away. Now, I've forbidden Robin from buying chips or chocolate because I'm trying to lose a bit of weight. I'm not doing real good at it, but... But I do a lot better than when we have chips and chocolate in the house. But I got home last night. And I said, I- I'm actually still really hungry. Have we got any chippies or anything? And No, I haven't got any chippies. Got some corn chips. Oh, are they the ones that I do actually like with all the flavour on them? She said, yes. I haven't seen them. Oh, they're hidden behind the such and such. Why do you think she hid them away behind there? She's keeping them safe for herself. You see, right? So she's keeping them safe for herself, knowing that if Michael knows they're there, I'll come here when I have a little peckish feeling and, and they won't be there, right? And, and you understand what I'm talking you, I'm seeing if you, some of you hide things from, other, from others in the house, don't you? Lauren, what have you? You know what's going to happen now? Jake's going to go home and he's going to ser- go searching just to see what is hidden away there. Righto. But it's about having a safe place, a secure place. And I think this is the second meaning of what it means to be hidden with Christ. We're safe, we're secure, we're tucked away with Him. No matter what happens to us on this earth, our future glory is assured. Our position with Christ at the moment is hidden. But when Christ returns, when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. Now, does anybody find that exciting? Yes, good. You know, some people are so filled with fear at the moment. Some are afraid that they're going to catch a virus and die. Some are afraid that the government is restricting our freedoms too much. Some are afraid that they're being forced to do something that they don't want to do. But you know what? As disciples of Jesus, let us never carry the same fears that people of the world carry. Let us never be afraid of anything that this world will throw at us. Because the spiritual reality behind everything that's going on in the world is a reality that the world cannot see. It is hidden from the world. But we are hidden in Christ. And when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. Doesn't that make all of the worries that that we have in this world just fade into nothing? And this is something that we're assured of. When Christ appears, we'll appear with him. Right Now, because we're hidden with Christ, because we're tucked away with him in the very throne room of God, because our hope is above, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, that's a pretty reasonable directive, don't you think? If we are hidden away with Christ at the right hand of God, there is no place for us to drag earthly pollution into that zone. Now, a number of times throughout the New Testament, We'll find various lists, catalogues of vices. We call them. What they do is they list examples of sin and transgression. That are, that are examples of our worldly, earthly nature. And in today's reading, we have two of those lists. And and I find it interesting that the first catalogue is is about personal sin, and it's really expressly focusing on sexual transgression. And some churches might have the attitude, oh, we'd never let that sort of stuff creep into our church. But then there's the second catalogue, and it's more about relational sin, more about how we relate to others. And that same church that goes, oh, we'll never have any of that sort of nasty stuff, might be also a church that's filled with anger, filled with malice, filled with wrath and slander. And I wasn't the only one who picked up on this. A commentary I read said this Many Christians tend to concentrate on one list or the other. And so you might know of a Christian community that, that would be appalled at the slightest sexual irregularity, but which themselves are nests of malicious intrigue, backbiting, gossip, and bad temper. Oh, we would have never seen a church like that anywhere, would we? Hmm. Yes. But then the flip side of that is you might also know of a church where, where people are so concerned to live in untroubled harmony um, with each other and, and that, that they would tolerate anything. They would tolerate even flagrant immorality. And, the, and he says the gospel, however, leaves no room for behaviour of either sort. Right? So we've got these two different catalogs, but they both are important. The first catalogue says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality. Now, standards of society seem to have changed. Um, you know, there once was a time when, oh, if, if a couple lived together before they were married, <gasps> my goodness, whereas now, what, you're getting married before you live together? How strange. That That's just the, the way our world has changed. But the thing is, scripturally and biblically and God, in, in God's eyes, things don't change. So what is sexual immorality? Sexual immorality is any sexual interaction which is against God's design. And God's design, what God approves, is one man and one woman married to each other. Everything else is sexual immorality. Impurity. That's uncleanness, indecency. And yes, our recently fired Australian cricket captain, that's a good example of indecency. Passion, he's talking about lust, uncontrolled passion. Evil desire, it is a desire for something that's forbidden. Covetousness is to have an insatiable appetite for more. It's ruthless greed. And in this context, in this list, he's been talking about all sorts of sexual stuff. He's actually probably talking about a a, a greed for sexual stuff. And he tells us this is idolatry. What a strange definition for idolatry. Isn't idolatry when you bow down to an idol? And he says it also in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's, that's pretty cutting stuff, isn't it? Greed is idolatry and sexual greed is idolatry. Is it any wonder that, that the pagan worship, which these that these Colossians used to live as a way of life it often included temple prostitutes it's very closely bound or if you think about King Solomon if there was ever a man with sexual greed it would have to be him 700 wives what was he thinking 700 wives imagine the number of hidey places he'd have to have for all their Christmas presents and that wasn't enough 300 concubines and some of his wives worshipped other gods. And though with the downfall of Solomon, they turned his heart away from God and into idolatry. And this is why greed for more, and particularly greed for more se- sexuality, um, is said to lead to idolatry. And, and often we, we even see it in, in our own society now and in the church. An, an often repeated story, too often is it repeated is when a Christian starts dating a non-Christian and they have in their mind, oh, I'm going to convert him or I'll convert her. But rarely does that ever happen. Sometimes it does, but that's the exception to the rule. And usually it works the other way. The sexual desire pulls them away from God and into idolatry. Anyway, Paul says, on account of these the wrath of God is coming. On account of what? Sexual sin? Well, yeah, all sin. On account of all sin and, and the way that we earthly live, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And that's the thing. that These are catalogs of sin. They're just listed as examples, right? They're not a list and, oh, thank goodness I don't do that one. Oh, thank goodness I don't. Oh, I don't do any of those on that list. Oh, good, I'm good. No, no, these are just examples of sin, and we all have are subject to different sins. But when it comes to the wrath of God, this is a topic that many churches, you'll never hear that topic come up, because they don't want to talk about them. Uh, we live in an age like never before, where many in our society um, they don't only don't want to hear about God. But they find it. They believe it's their right to not be offended. And if you offend me, then I'm going to see to it that that you're punished for that. And to talk about the wrath of God, that's really offensive. And this has become really topical again right now, because finally, after three years, uh, the federal government have introduced the Freedom of Religion Bill to Parliament. It's taken them three years. They made it an election issue before the last election and promised we're going to bring this in and they told us what it would look like and it worked in their favour. In some of the seats um, that that were leaning towards Labour, the federal government picked up those seats because they were seats that valued religious freedom. But they've taken their whole term of government to finally introduce it. And you know what? They've watered it down. But I, I find it strange that they've done it again now, just before the next federal election. And it's highly unlikely that it'll pass through the Senate uh, before the next election. So there you go, it's going to be an election issue again. Um, but they've watered it down. Uh, many of you will remember when Israel Falal, in his own private social media account, listed a catalogue of sins, not unlike this one. And he said these things and he said that if people don't repent of these things, I'll go to hell, which is pretty much what Paul is saying here. And people were offended and so his employer sacked him. That, that's a pretty harsh sort of a cost. Um, why? Oh, they gave him opportunity to take it back but, but he wouldn't. I, I have to stand by these words. And um, so people were offended and he was sacked. By the way, the The religious discrimination bill that's now in Parliament, they've watered it down enough that this would not have protected him even if it comes in. So it's not going to do what it was originally intended. But why is the wrath of God so offensive? I'll tell you why. It's because it reminds us that we're not accountable to ourselves. It reminds us that we are accountable to a holy God. And this is a holy God who's going to judge. And yet many people will just write it off. Oh, if, if God is a God of love, he's not going to send anyone to hell. He's not going to judge anyone. But the trouble with that is we have a God of justice. And we as humans, we cry out for justice, do we not? What happens when, when a terrible crime has been committed and a judge gives the, the criminal a very tiny sentence and they're out of jail within a few months? There's a giant public outcry. There's no justice. That person should be punished, right? As humans, we know that justice is required. And if our God is a God of justice, he cannot let go sin go unpunished. And so the wrath of God is coming. The reason it hasn't come yet is because God has been holding off, giving us every opportunity to repent, giving us every opportunity to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the day of wrath is coming. But as Christians, it's really important that we never, ever become the sort of people who just point our fingers at at everybody else and go, oh, you're the dirty, rotten sinners. Because what does Paul remind us here? Paul, Paul gives the Colossians a reminder, you used to do this sort of stuff too before you were saved. But not anymore. Let us never forget that. We didn't become Christians because we were sinless. We became Christians because we have a saviour. Someone once described evangelism as one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. In other words, it's one sinner who's been rescued by a saviour telling another sinner how to be saved. So we're not to be pointing the finger. But he's also reminding us that God has called us out of our old ways. He's called us out of our old lives and into a new way. You see, when it comes to righteous living, some of us in the church, we might feel, oh, I can't insist on this particular standard because before I was saved, I used to do that sin. So I can't expect other people in the church not to be doing that. But that's the whole point. The word used to. Used to is gone. Used to is erased. Used to is nailed to the cross. And every Christian has been called to a new holiness. So as Christians, we used to walk in the ways of the world. It says in verse 8, but now you must put them all away or take them off. See, when it comes to being saved and and when it comes to holy living, there's the divine initiative. That's the part that God does. And then there's the human response. God has saved us. But now we're being told that we have to put away or put off all our old ways." Ah, when you get old, you start to reminisce. Back in the day, uh, when I was an ag-dag, now for the uninitiated, that's a student at an ag college, uh, the rules that, at the Dolby Ag College were pretty strict. And they had a dress code that was pretty strict. So. They didn't worry much too much about what you wore on your time off, sort of like when you're just around the dorms or out kicking the footy or whatever. You just wear shorts and sand shoes or whatever. But it was, when it came time for you to go to practical classes and stuff, you had to have what we called work dress. And we knew it as work dress. And work dress was a long-sleeved shirt. It was long pants. You could wear jeans if you like. You had to have a belt and a pocket knife, and boots, work boots, and socks, and a hat. No caps, had to be a broadband work hat, and a notebook and pen, right? So that was work dress. And if you turned up for a practical subject and you weren't in work dress, you would be sent straight back to the dorm to get changed, and you'd earn a penalty to boot. Then there was something called town dress. Long dress. Long pants, but this time good long pants. A good long shirt. Sometimes you'd have to wear a tie, but not usually. Dress boots. Now, the, the, the students who came who had richer parents all wore RMs. At the time, we couldn't afford RMs, so I just had a pair of dressy blundstones. Um, and a dress hat, not your grubby old work hat. You had to have a dress hat. Once again, a broad-brimmed hat. You couldn't have a cap, right? And that was town dress. Unless, of course, it was nighttime, You wouldn't wear a hat. Um, but to have dinner at night, you'd have to knock off work, go back to your dorm, have a shower, and get into town dress before you would be allowed into the dining room. Um, and on Saturday mornings, uh, yes, you could be in, in your casual clothes for breakfast, but If you wanted to get on the bus to go into town to do a little bit of shopping on Saturday morning, what did you have to be in? Town dress. And so everybody would know you were from the Dolby Ag College because you were dressed up as you were downtown. It was very clear, down the paddock, that's a place for work clothes. But if you were a student of the Dolby Ag College, if you went into town, you would be in town dress. And this is the sort of image that Paul is trying to give us here because we are raised with Christ to life. We take off our old way of living, just like we take off our grubby old work clothes. We take off our old way of living and now we put on our new way of living. We're living in righteousness and holiness. And so we come to the second catalogue of vices. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This list, this catalogue, is about the way we relate to others. We take off anger. We mustn't be angry with one another. Wrath. We're not the ones who are responsible for wrath. That's what God does. We don't pay people back for the wrong that they've done to us. Malice. That's vindictiveness. Slander. That's telling lies and saying nasty things about other people with the intention of putting them down or putting them offside with other people. There must be none of that. Obscene talk. Lying. I think lying is one of the the big things. The truth of Jesus Christ must always be on our lips. Disciples of Jesus must never lie. You see, our conversion... It isn't just about turning away from our old life, it's also about embracing our new life, embracing the life that God has saved us to. It's a complete new change in our personality. You cannot be saved and remain the same, just as much as I cannot be saved and remain the same. We're being renewed after the image of our creator. Man, humanity, we're not just another animal in the animal kingdom. Humankind are created in the image of God. And I heard somebody give this definition once, and I like it. Um, What makes us human is the potential to be raised. Those who are in Christ will be raised to glory. Those who reject Christ will also be raised, but they will be raised to wrath. Now, throughout Colossians, there's an underlying drive for Christian fellowship and for unity within the church. Last week, we we talked about how the body is being knit together and how together we grow with a growth that is from God. And yet some Christians are of the attitude, if Christ is all I need, because that was also part of our our, um, theme, which has been coming through for about a month now, Christ is everything we need. But some folk might be of the attitude, if Christ is all I need, then it doesn't matter that I'm not connected to a church. But Paul is is really clear to make sure that we don't get that sort of attitude. In verse 11, he says, Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. We, in Christ, we've been raised into his new kingdom." And this kingdom that we've been raised into isn't a kingdom of racial prejudices. This kingdom isn't a kingdom where the colour of one's skin has any bearing. This isn't a kingdom that will judge you on what religion you used to be before you were saved. It's a place where you won't be judged on what you have repented of because that has gone. You won't be judged on, on what language you speak. Uh, that, that's what the word barbarian meant to the Greeks, by the way. The Greeks called anyone who couldn't speak Greek barbarians. You know why? Because to them it all just sound like blah, 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 right? Just a bit like, what's her name? Greta Thunberg, blah, 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 right? Um, in the church, it doesn't matter whether you're an employer or an employee or whether you're a manager or someone who's managed, or whether you're a slave or whether you're a master. And here comes the really important bit. We are all one in Christ. We get this? We're all one in Christ. And Christ is in all of us. You know, do you understand the ramifications of this? If I reject my Christian brother, I reject Christ who is in him. If I refuse to fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm refusing fellowship to Christ because Christ is in them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you that you have saved us through the cross. We thank you that you have bestowed on us and are growing in us genuine holiness. Lord, how wonderful it is that that we are hidden in you, that no matter what this world throws at us, our future is that we will appear as you appear in glory. Lord, help us respond to your grace as you would have us respond that we would take off our old ways like dirty old clothes ripped and torn to be thrown away and that we would put on this new life of holiness as is befitting our position, hidden in you, to be revealed in glory. Amen.